You're listening to the Vice Chancellor's Hour, a ministry of Radio ABC 993 FM on the campus of African Bible University. I'm Jeremiah Pitts, a professor and administrator here at the African Bible University in Uganda. The purpose of Vice Chancellor's Hour is to provide biblical and theological teachings that are an extension of the ministry of the university. Glad to be back for another episode of the Vice Chancellor's Hour. We are working through a series against Christian pacifism. I am happy to be looking forward to the next episode. As much as I've enjoyed this series, I think we've done a lot to cover it. I'm hoping that at the end of this, if you've listened to all the episodes, you're very encouraged that the Bible teaches us that we should be peacemakers who take care of our fellow man through offering peace whenever possible, but also protecting innocent life, the weak, the vulnerable, and upholding justice, primarily through the work of our government structures and those who are in authority over us, but also through the correct application of self-defense whenever called upon to do so. And in this, uh, hopefully, if you've been with me for a long time, you know that the Bible is very strong on the idea that the weak are to be defended, and it's our responsibility to, to help them. And not only that, but in fact, to preserve someone who bears the image of God is in fact to do the work of God so long as we do it in the way he would have us to do it. If you haven't heard those episodes, maybe you're listening to me for the first time on the radio, or you've not heard something in the series and you have questions, we've covered a lot of the passages and a lot of the questions that deal with this in previous episodes. You can always catch us on vchour.buzzsprout.com. All of our old episodes are there, and a lot of people have. We've had over 13,000 downloads. I think in the last episode, I said we had more than 12,000. I didn't know how much more than 12,000 we have. We broke uh, 13,000 downloads all over the world listening to us, and what a blessing it is. But I would say, if this is the first time you've heard something from the series, go back and check out the previous episodes. I didn't start doing this because of any kind of current events that are going on, or because of popular questions that arise in social media, or anything like that. I actually have been working on this topic for years out of personal self-interest and curiosity as I read the Bible and I was reading certain Christian authors even sort of raised questions for me personally. Is the Bible telling me I should be a pacifist? As I studied the topic, studying really, I would say, the best arguments from the pacifists themselves, I found that their argumentation didn't match what the scriptures actually teach. There's a lot of absurdities there, like guys who will tell you that God himself never deals violently and therefore we shouldn't when in fact you see God described as dealing violently with people. I've heard people say crazy things like the violence in the Old Testament that we find there, that God even authorizes, sometimes even commands, doesn't necessarily mean that we should be violent, doing divorce between the Old Testament and the New Testament in some pretty significant ways. And what we find, in fact, is that the New Testament ethic that encourages us to love our neighbor and to not hate our enemies That very ethic actually is found in the Old Testament as well, and the Old Testament also authorized the use of violence, so it did not believe those two things were incompatible, and there's no reason for us to either. And not only that, but Jesus himself did fashion a whip, did use it against people appropriately for him in the time and the place where he was, 
Not only that, he encouraged his disciples to carry around appropriate instruments of self-defense as they were going about their normal business in the same way that they would carry a backpack or a cloak or, you know, a purse. It's full of money as you travel. And just a normal means of living in the world should include a way to take care of yourself if you're in a dangerous situation where permissible. And not only that, but he does issue, he does tell us we should not have personal vengeance and personal attacks on others. And that, of course, leads to the question, how then will justice be given? How will it be meted out? And the answer to that is that he institutes the government to be the bearer of the sword and that they don't bear the sword in vain. And so the government has a responsibility to discourage, to punish, and to restrain evil. And they do that through forceful means when necessary. Covered a lot of other subtopics. I'm not going to go through all of them, but in case you've missed previous episodes, that's a brief rundown. And maybe you have a passage of scripture and you could go back and look and see. You'll find it there, all downloadable for free. But today we're going to talk a little bit about why I'm so concerned about pacifism. I mean, in the end, a person might say, in the end, a pacifist really is hurting no one. I mean, that's kind of their whole thing is to hurt no one. And so why would you spend time and energy on this as well? And in fact, I've thought a lot about this question also because it can be very tough. The pacifists I've known in real life have certainly bended towards the activist side of things, meaning they wanted to be politically engaged from a Christian perspective on things, but always nonviolently, or at least they attempted to hold to the ideal, as we all do imperfectly. Sometimes they have slips here and there, as all of us do, as we have these laws. And in general, quite a few of them have been actually pretty nice people, as long as you didn't get them too animated about pacifism specifically. That's the one subject they tend to get kind of worked up about. So what's the harm? And the answer to that, I want to kind of take up with you today. And it's because the biblical standard for when we teach is that it ought to teach what the Bible says. And we don't get to say, I think the person who's trying to do it is probably doing it from real misgivings they have or a real misunderstanding they have or because something bad happened to them in the past and they really strongly react to that and then they go to the Bible for reasons why it may have happened that way. I want to kind of give you an example from the scriptures that I think about a lot, not just about pacifism, but about how we treat the scriptures in general and how our religious authorities can exceed their own limitations and the dangers of doing that. So if you have a Bible and you're not in a situation like driving a car, but if you're listening on a bus, you're listening on a taxi, open up your Bible to Mark chapter 7, maybe your neighbor will ask what that's all about, and you can witness to them. Wouldn't that be fantastic? This is what Mark 7, 1 says. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, 
This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me as korban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now, this is a passage that it doesn't directly address the question of pacifism. I want to get that out from the very beginning. But what it does is help us to see Jesus interacting with a powerful group of people who had studied the Word of God and were attempting to hold others accountable by a standard that was man-made and invented. First thing I want you to see is that these type of divisive people, people who want to cause problems, will absolutely travel to find you. I don't know why it is, but we often think of like, I'm just going to stay in my lane, you stay in your lane. But, but there's actually a type of person who will go to your church or go to your Bible study, go to your house, to your party, to your work, go to your, I don't know, your social media, whatever, looking to start a fight with you in order to be divisive. And in fact, divisiveness in the modern era seems to be one of the primary ways that we engage with one another, and people are willing to travel to do it. It says that the scribes and the Pharisees came down. Uh, they actually had to travel in order to cause this trouble based on the other passages we find in the Gospels that are similar to this one. It is likely they were looking to find something to pester Jesus about. In fact, this is not even the first time they've traveled to cause a problem in the book of Mark itself. They made a, a long and a difficult journey seemingly only with the purpose of finding fault. That was their intention. They're willing to go a long way to make a problem. Now, they had failed in their previous attacks on Jesus, and so they turn, they pivot their attention instead to the disciples, and they try to attack the disciples, because if you can demonstrate that someone's followers are no good, that, of course, does impugn the leader, it, it is something you could see that's bad about him. Now, I need you to know that the devil is active in his resistance in the people of God, and the world is active in its resistance of the people of God. It's not passive, waiting for you to do something and then reacting, but instead, the forces of evil who are here to create division among people unbiblically will travel long distances to get to you, to find you, and attempt to disrupt you. That's real. So just the other day was reading a report about just such a divisive group, and they went to various universities, and they put themselves into student groups that already existed, and the point of doing that was to attempt 
to insert their new heretical theology into those student groups, and in so doing, to put a wedge between those people and the biblical teaching they were getting, between those people and their families, between those people and their universities. But they specifically traveled to find them. They went from university to university to try to find these students to drive a wedge between them and everyone else and between their good beliefs, separating them out for false beliefs. They will travel to find you. Divisive people will travel to find you to cause a problem. Don't assume because you're sitting in your own corner, doing your own thing in your quiet little church, that that means the devil won't have someone to come seek you out to cause a problem. Everywhere that good is going on, there is an attack from the evil one as well. This is never a cause of despair for us, because as we see in Jesus's response, he overcomes. And so we must rely upon him, but don't be so foolish as to assume because you're living a simple, quiet life that the devil can't enter in and cause problems. The devil, the world, and the flesh ever present with us, ever waging war against Christ, his people, and his kingdom. Now, you need to know I'm talking primarily about a danger that's within the church. And so as I'm talking to you about this, I'm not talking about people who are outside of the visible church, the church you can see. As I think of it, pacifism is not primarily a secular danger, and false teaching is not a secular danger, just as in this passage, it wasn't secular people who had this in mind. Maybe the best representative sort of of a, of a secular mindset might be Pilate, and you remember, of course, his interaction with Jesus. Now, it's very likely that Pilate went through many religious rites, so I don't want to overstate it as though he was an, an arch-atheist or unfamiliar with religion. But he did say some astonishingly secular things in his interactions with Jesus, including asking him what exactly was truth and doing what you might call realpolitik. He didn't think Jesus was guilty, as we've covered before, but yeah, he was willing to put him to death anyway because it was the most convenient thing. Here, though, is the representation of what Jesus mostly battled against when it came to his earthly ministry and the people around him. And it wasn't people who were secular. It was people who were taking up sacred spaces, as it were, people who believed themselves to be representing the church, the people of God. And so here I'm talking to us in a way about us, about the visible church and the dangers that we might find there. Now, this is exactly the point where if you're Anglican, you might think we're talking about the Catholics, or if you're you know, a Presbyterian, you think I'm talking about the Anglicans, you're Baptist, you think I'm talking about a Presbyterian, if you're charismatic, you think I'm talking about the Baptists or whatever, you guys get the idea. And the answer is no. I'm talking about all actual members of Christ's true and visible church, right? So when you think of the church you see when you go there, as distinct from the people who are really Christ's people, those people who are in the visible church, but also those who are in the visible church and don't believe. I'm talking about those ones you can see. When you go to church, I hope you know, if you go to church of any size, it's very likely that there's a mixture there, hopefully of a great number of people who believe, but certainly there are also some there who don't. And it's not easy to tell the difference. Jesus tells a parable about this a couple of times. The wheat and the weeds is one of the more famous ones, sometimes called the wheat and the tares where he tells you it's really hard to tell the difference. And in some sense, being overly zealous of trying to separate people out actually will end up destroying true believers as well. You can do actually great damage to the church. 
and the sheep and the goats intermingled. Very difficult to tell the difference, but the sheep and the goats do mingle together. So I'm talking about the visible church. Now, once again, I would say these may be things that the world around us may take up to try to use against us to prove that we're inconsistent or hypocritical or whatever, but they're not generated internally. What they're doing is they're using a false teaching from someone who's a member of the visible church as a way of undermining what the real teachings of God would be. And again, pacifism is a great example of this. There are many people who are not Christians who sincerely believe Christians have to be pacifists. And they believe that because people who say they're Christians, some of whom very likely are Christians but are mistaken, believe also they have to be pacifists, despite what the scriptures actually teach. The unbeliever is willing to use it as a stick, but it's not a stick of his own invention, if I may say it that way. Now, what's the core problem in this situation? Jesus tells them the core problem they're having is their assumption about the nature of the traditions of men. He says that they're using the tradition of men as commandments. In this example, what was happening was Jesus' disciples were not going through certain types of extra washings that were beyond what the scriptures taught. Many people assume, even today assume, the disciples were required to wash according to the Old Testament. But in fact, there is no general prohibition on eating with unwashed hands in the Old Testament. It doesn't exist. They had wholesale made it up, right? So what had actually happened is there are specific commands about how the priest should interact at specific occasions. So high view of washing, you might want to call it. There is also a prohibition on people who have had certain illnesses, who have touched certain things, or were participating themselves in certain specific religious activities. Those people had to wash, right? So if you were a priest and you were doing certain types of worship, you had to ceremonially wash. You did. You needed to wash. And if you were a person who had certain illnesses, you had touched certain things like a dead body, or participating in certain specific rituals, religious activities, then yeah, you had to wash. But there was no general command to wash before you ate. They made that up. Now, where did it come from? It's an, an imposition of an assumption. And what I mean by that is, you might think of it this way. You might consider it like generally good advice. Let, let's say that you're in a huge group of people, and you don't know what those people have done, and you want to be sure you're not unwashed when you should be washed. You don't know what someone else has touched. You don't know what else they've participated in. And so when you mix with a large group, then you would just go back and you would wash to be sure that you were clean. That's, I think, probably the practical genesis of the idea. It's an imposition of assumption that became the teachings of, hey, do this. If you wash your hands, you can be sure you're not violating other commands. But where did it come from? It came from the teaching of man. That wasn't God's law. It was the presumption and assumption of human teaching. And, and these people are so arrogant that they think they can take what they personally believe to be a good general principle and impose it on everyone as a standard of rightness. Even taking Jesus' disciples and attempting to impose it upon them and in doing so, to make him look bad as though he's insufficient. And with this man-made rule, 
they become the good guys, and Jesus and his disciples become the bad guys. Now, Jesus calls them out on this and tells them it's hypocritical. It's hypocritical. Now, you might be surprised by that because what they're doing is they're taking what in their own minds was an elevated standard and trying to hold to that standard, right? And so we don't often think of that as hypocrisy, but it is. It is a deep hypocrisy. Why? Because what they wanted to do was they wanted to display a greater outward conformity to be seen to be doing the right thing, but they were actually unconcerned about what God's Word actually says. They're unconcerned about what God's Word actually says. Now, I'm going to say something that I, I know is going to upset some good people. And so you make sure you stick with me here. Don't just listen to the first buzzword and jump off. You know, I, I never say these things because I'm trying to court controversy. Um, well, maybe you don't believe that anymore. If I, do a, <laughs> if I do a series on pacifism, I don't know. Go back and listen to the rest of my stuff. I haven't, I haven't ever picked something in order to be controversial, but instead because it was true and it's from the scriptures. Let me get back to what I was saying. There's a way Christians talk to each other sometimes that I think is well-intentioned, but comes off as exactly this type of hypocrisy. And what they say is, they say things like, we need to have a high standard. Let's have high standards. Let's have high standards. And that phrase, high standards, it's really powerful, isn't it? Because if you want to do what's right, you know that not doing what's right is low standards, and doing what's right is high standards. That's the assumption. The problem is we say things like high standards. The word high is relative. It's not grounded in anything. It's relative. What's high is relative. If you're in the state of Florida, where some of my family comes from, it is very flat. And if you found a structure that was 600 feet tall, that would be very high. Why? Because most of the state of Florida is at sea level. And if you get to 600 feet, you're well above almost everything else, if not everything else, in the state of Florida. It's a very flat state. So to be high there might just be 600 feet. There are plenty of places where 600 feet is below where you're standing on the ground. Where I am here in Kampala is around 4,000 feet, if I remember correctly. And so I would have to go down thousands of feet to get to 400 feet. That's not high at all. Oftentimes, people who live near mountains sort of make fun of people who live near hills because the people who live near hills will talk about how high it is. But of course, it's no mountain. High is relative. And when we say we want high standards, what ends up happening is people often mean higher than you. We should have a high standard. But there's no end to saying high because high is relative. To put it simply, it's the wrong thing to be concerned about, and Jesus says that here. What we should be focused on is biblical standards. Biblical standards. And the problem with saying things like high standards is that you could take biblical standards and wrongly assume you should tighten those standards in order to help the people around you. Undoubtedly, the washing traditions were about tightening the standards to help the people around them. 
Jesus says that's hypocritical because on the outside, you're wanting to seem like you conform, but inside you're actually not concerned about what God's word actually says. So that if you and I don't want to be hypocritical, we shouldn't be looking for what's the toughest possible thing that we could do, but instead we should look at what does God's word tell us to do? Because what God's word tells us to do is what's right. You know, let me give you a sort of a silly example. What if I told you that you could never eat on a Tuesday, but you needed to fast every Tuesday? Okay. Now, for some of you guys, you're already in a problem because you're having a hard time thinking about how you might explain to me I'm wrong. And if I was your pastor and I told you, hey, we're going to fast every Tuesday. And if you don't, you're coming under church discipline. Some of you would be very concerned. You'd be very concerned because now you're thinking, I really do have to fast every Tuesday. But you see, if you think about it biblically, you don't just get to say fasting is a good thing. You don't get to just say, you know, why not fast, right? Those are both things you can say, but you see the command from a religious authority has pushed beyond that, hasn't it? It's gone beyond just good advice, and they're now commanding something for you beyond their biblical authority. So the right answer to you have to fast every Tuesday is, where do I find that in the Bible? Where does the Bible say I should fast every Tuesday? And do you know that it's actually good for us all to fast every Tuesday? Like, what's the evidence? Why Tuesday instead of Wednesday? And who gave you the right to choose? If it's, if it's not there in the scriptures, it's not a scriptural measure. It's not a scriptural authority, and therefore we don't have to hold to it. And to hold to it, if we don't find it in the scriptures, is pharisaical and hypocritical. Perhaps you can see where I'm going with this. We can't be so concerned with how we look on the outside that we ignore what God's word actually tells us. God's word actually tells us that there are good times, though they ought to be rare, there are good times for us to impose ourselves physically in circumstances to protect precious life, to defend the weak, and also to punish transgressors. They bear not the sword in vain. And for us to turn the Bible upside down, to take the ethic of God and turn it upside down so that we say we're holding a higher standard than the Bible actually holds, makes us Pharisees. It makes us hypocrites. Not only that, but it's a truly wicked thing. It really is. You see, in the end, if you encourage people to do things as though it were God's law, you are always going to end up encouraging ungodly behavior. Let me say that again. If you're telling people to follow a commandment that is a tradition of men rather than what God's word says, you will always end up encouraging ungodly behavior. Take the example in this passage in Mark 7. God's law says, honor your father and mother. Isn't that what God's law says? Honor your father and mother. Pretty straightforward. And then man's law, as we see it, as Jesus describes it here, was you actually have to neglect your father and mother if you promise to give to the temple instead. That's the practice that was going on. If you said you were giving your goods to the temple, then they allowed you to be prohibited from giving to your parents. 
And this raises the question, in what sense are you honoring your father and mother if you don't help them when they need help? It's foolish, isn't it? But you see, their ungodly standards actually create ungodly behavior under the guise of being a higher standard. Do you see how this works in our conversation about pacifism? They think they're holding a higher standard of nonviolence. But the end result of it is ungodliness. The weak are no longer protected. The innocent are now able to be falling prey to wicked people. The guilty, against what God has explicitly commanded, they go unpunished. All under the false claim of godliness. That is hypocrisy. It is a man-made standard, not from the scriptures, and it will result not in greater godly behavior, but in ungodly behavior. Not only that, it's under the foolish assumption of improving upon the word of God. What unbelievable presumption to go beyond what God has actually taught to create a new and different standard than what he's clearly taught throughout his Bible, as though you were the God who could make the standard. We often think of wickedness as not obeying things God has told us to do, but adding commandments to God's commands is just as wicked. Be sure that you aren't attempting to take the place of God, for that is the sin of the devil. When we attempt to put ourselves on the throne of heaven to declare to others what they must do, it is presumptive in such a prideful way that he should, and did once to one of his own disciples, say, get behind me, Satan. Not because you are Satan yourself, but because those actions are in service of him and not of the one true God. Not only that, but they also rob us of the liberty that we have in Christ. Adhering to the Bible is the standard, and it actually sets you free. It sets you free from the ability for others to tell you crazy and insane and harmful things that they say you have to do in order to keep up an ethic that they themselves have invented wholesale. You've become chained by man-made traditions rather than having the liberty that God would give us. You know, it's often the case that people assume that the teachings of God actually, they bind you. In my experience, it's been the opposite. Not only are they good for you and they help you, in ways that being bound does not, but it also sets you free from everything else that wants you. If I'm God's, I need to do what God teaches, the way he tells me to do it, and now I'm free to ignore all of the other false teachings, whatever they may be. This is why I can hear, you know, one of those crazy guys on the radio who's telling you all kinds of nonsense that you have to do, and I can just shake my head and think, that's crazy. He has no call on my life because his teaching is not from the Bible, and so I may ignore it. And the same thing is true, by the way, of me. If I'm teaching you something, and you were to read the Bible, and you see for yourself, God forbid, that it doesn't match up, then I'm in the wrong, and ignore me. You may do so with my full encouragement, because that is the biblical standard, as we see here in Mark chapter 7. Don't enslave yourself to men who make mistakes. I mean, there's a great irony of enslavement to tradition from a people who are actually rebellious. Jesus calls these people rebellious over and over and over again, and yet they're enslaved to tradition, not to the teachings of God. They think 
that they're the tradition holders, but they're actually the rebels. You see the problem? It also causes fighting and division within the church. In fact, Paul very strongly tells us to avoid the type of people who are doing these pharisaical behaviors. Paul says, avoid them. Now, we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourself from every brother that walks disorderly and not after the tradition which he received of us, meaning the teachings and the writings of Paul. Walking disorderly here is to cause division and bring blame. And it's not uncommon for the one who's bringing that division to actually blame the one who's avoiding them. We say that all the time. The problem maker blames the person they've attacked, saying they're the ones who aren't in line, when in fact they're the ones who are causing division. Not only that, but anytime we turn our eyes to man-made tradition, it leads us away from Christ. Colossians 2.8 says this, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Follow the teachings of Christ, all of the teachings of Christ. And I remind you here that that doesn't mean you read only the Sermon on the Mount and none of the rest of the Bible, or as they used to call them, red-letter Christians. They just look at what Jesus said and nothing else, because one of the things Jesus said was that all the Scriptures point to him, and he tells the people they should have known the Scriptures, they should have read the Scriptures. When they didn't know the Old Testament, he chastised them for not knowing it. Those are his own words. So if you trust his word, you have to trust the Old Testament. Read it. Read the Scriptures. Know the Scriptures. Avoid the traditions of men which divide us. You will end up following Pharisees and scribes. They, they were dead inside. They had all the trappings, all the honor of their fellow man, and they were dead inside religiously. Now, does that mean there are no traditions we should hold fast to? No, of course not. I mentioned one in one of the previous passages. This one also from 2 Thessalonians. Therefore, brethren, stand fast, hold the traditions which you have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. So the teachings from Scripture. Here the apostle is telling them he has the authoritative word of God. Peter treats Paul's words, his writings, as Scripture. He puts it alongside the Old Testament. These are the Scriptures. So what should you hold fast to? What God teaches us in his word. 1 Corinthians 11.2, Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions as I delivered them to you. Receive what the apostle gave to you. And what, How do you have that? Well, you have it in places like 1 Corinthians, in your Bible. That's where you have it. You have it in your Bible. So hold fast to the teachings in the Scripture. That's exactly what it's teaching. The teachings from God's Word are reliable. So you and I, we need to measure what we believe and what we teach against the Word of God that we have received in His Scriptures. That's what we should trust. Everything else that's taught, everything else that's said, should be examined in light of those Scriptures. Every single thing. Not only that, we should never attempt to impose our own will, our own thoughts, our own creations, what we think is a good idea, where we think the Scriptures should have said something, even though they don't. We should never try to impose that on our fellow believer or on his church at all. To do so, believe it or not, is actually to encourage ungodliness. My concern with Christian pacifism 
is that we lay a burden on people that God himself never put on us. And in so doing, we do great damage to their souls, but also potentially to the bodies of those who are the very ones we ought to be protecting. And that rather than upholding good with our actions, we instead are encouraging the flourishing of evil instead. Let's stick to what God's word tells us. It tells us we ought to be peacemakers. It never tells us we should be pacifists. I do pray that the God of all peace will grant you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. You're listening to the Vice Chancellor's Hour, a ministry of Radio ABC 993 FM on the campus of African Bible University. I'm Jeremiah Pitts, a professor and administrator here at the African Bible University in Uganda. The purpose of Vice Chancellor's Hour is to provide biblical and theological teachings that are an extension of the ministry of the university.